Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Welcome to a special edition of Beyond Bitcoin. In this episode, we are honored to be the guests of the Boston Blockchain Association, who define themselves as a community of innovators, collaborators, and entrepreneurs excited about the promise of blockchain technology. Hmm. I must say, that sounds like our Beyond Bitcoin audience. Thank you, John Hargraves and team for making this happen. This episode was recorded live and we'll have audience questions throughout. The topic is, what can we learn from crypto institutional investors? Please enjoy. So broadly, our topic is gonna be, what can we learn from crypto institutional investors today? And I wanna start with a proposition to you, Nitin, and that is, I've got a great investment for you. It's Shibu Inu, okay? It's just 0.00001 cent in price. So my gym instructor is in, and he's doubled his money in just three weeks' time. It's so cheap when you compare it with, say, Dogecoin, which is 0.06 cents, or for crying out loud, to Bitcoin, which is like $19,000. Nitin, just imagine if your Shibu Anu went to $19,000, how much money you would make. So <laughs> well, Derek, this is that's what the difference. Call, yeah. This, that's right. This is what you call the cocktail of information, asymmetry, and emotion. And I want to try and define here for the audience the difference between institutional investors and the difference between retail investors. I mean, as retail investors, we all make decisions based upon our own upbringings, our culture, the generation we lived in, the teachings from our parents and the time and place we live. So by example, my parents grew up in the Great Depression. So every cent is important. Whereas I grew up in Australia and, and this nation actually hasn't experienced a recession for 30 years. So do you think our risk appetite would be different by any chance? Of course. So each of us sees money and investment through sort of different lenses. You know, is money good? Is money bad? Is it hard to get? Is it a tool to invest in? Or is it just the stuff you buy Ferraris with, Nitin? So like it or not, it's a cocktail of history, education, emotional influences, and that's how we make our investment decisions. Here lies the difference between institutional investors and retail investors. It is as simple as emotionally driven investment decisions versus process in driven investment decisions. But then it starts getting complex again. So by example, there are some 131,000 mutual funds worldwide to choose from. And there's some 12,500 hedge funds with some $4.5 trillion. By the way, the difference between a hedge fund and a mutual fund is simple. And that is mutual funds retail hedge fund is designed for accredited or professional investors. So crypto hedge funds worldwide 
represent, you know, there's less than 400 of them. So to set context to this discussion today, it's tiny. So it's got about 4.1 billion funds under management, which is less than 1% of the global hedge funds. So remember, we're not talking about VCs today, Ned, we're talking about hedge funds, yeah. institutional hedge funds, right? Um, because the VC market we know is quite large. There's some 42 and a half billion is invested into this space in the last 15 months out of America alone. And we estimate about hundred billion worldwide, but in the hedge fund section, which is the section here that's taken the biggest hits, um, you know, we, but we know quite a bit about them because PwC bless them do an annual hedge fund report um, for the crypto industry. So they analyze each year for the last four years how this hedge fund is operating, what makes it tick. So <clears throat> in order of size, um, the investors in these hedge funds are number one, ultra high net worth individuals, number two, family offices, and number three, fund of funds. So for the savvy listening audience, you might've noticed that um, superannuation companies, institutions, universities, that they're not, they don't rank in the top three in these hedge funds. So not only is this industry small, but the large established instos aren't investing in a large manner within these particular um, VC, within these particular um, crypto funds. So the most common crypto hedge fund strategy, by the way, 30% of them is simply market neutral trading. Yeah. And so they're just doing high frequency trading and arbitrage trading. So not a really big step into the market, by the way, that we would say, but nonetheless, it plays a role. 25% um, of the hedge funds in this industry do quantitative long short trading and about 14% do discretionary long only committed trading into the space. So emotion or not, they don't always get it right. So by example, PwC is discovered in April 2022 when this survey was uh, finalized that about 50% of all of these hedge funds had traded in US dollar terror, UST. And some 30% of these hedge funds had exposure to Terra Luna. So, however, that might be okay. And there's rationale to that. And that is that if you're an investor and you wanna choose a high volatility thematic fund, this exposure might be the sort of thing you'd expect because it has very high volatility upside. But of course, you've got a factor in, it may have volatility downside too. The point is that if an institutional investment hedge funds adheres to their mandate, have a competent team in place, then they should always get their strategy right. That may include substantial downward volatility, depending what their strategy is. So where we can go wrong, where it goes wrong, is when they operate outside their mandate, when potentially they over leverage their investments and they lose their shareholders stroke investors funds. And I think that's part of what we're going to talk about today, AKA the 3AC, Voyager, yep. Mabel, Finance, um, along with 14 others that Nitten, you define as the contagion <laughs> of incompetence, um, uh, the sort of things that we'll probably see that what they've done is they've gone outside their mandate and they've done trading that they shouldn't have traded and they've over leveraged. So we know that a well-managed institutional grade fund should have predictable performance. 
even though that performance might be highly volatile if that's the type of fund you've got. Um, but what we've, and we've seen that by the way, with the majority of institutional funds, even in this space in the last 12 months, right. because what we're talking about here is like 14, 16 funds, and there's about 400 of them out there. So well, what that's less than 5% um, we've seen um, that have really taken this impact that we've seen so far um, along the way. So they're not all getting it right but some of them are doing it wrong. And maybe we can talk a little bit about where they've gone astray. And I know you've done some deep dives here, so I'm really keen to hear which ones went wrong and maybe why they went wrong. And along yeah, the way, yeah. let's ask some questions and answers. Well, thanks, Derek. And again, thank you for uh, Boston Blockchain Association for the invitation. Um, again, since I joined State Street, there's been a close relationship. Uh, with them. And so a lot to unpack there, Derek. I've written extensively in the past few weeks and few months, and I did coin the term contagion of incompetence because in the cryptosphere, the whole element was, should we call this a contagion or should we hold off? And if you look at the behavior, but before we go into specifics, which I think we should do once we take a pause for q and I'd like to unpack a lot of things that you mentioned, which are sort of the, the structure that you mentioned, right? For example, some data points. Crypto in general, which is the funds that are dealing with crypto assets, the funds that are dealing with this newer emerging industry in the new, you know, fifth asset class, generally lacks the market structure, right? Um, some of these is by design that a disruptive force that started out with P2P and Bitcoin led, uh, you know, evolution that sparked the bankless movement. Uh, so the genesis of this industry was built upon transparency and counterparts free or counterparty free. Uh, transactional environment, right? And this transparency was lent from technologies like Bitcoin and blockchain and DLT infrastructure with constructs built into the tech around immutability, around sort of consensus and so on and so forth. So that's the, the premise of where we're heading and what led to the recent sort of failures of many of the institutional investors. And, um, you know, and, and so the crypto institutional investors to operate in this environment, which is an entity like yourself, with conventional investment wisdom, all the things that you mentioned in terms of, you know, emotions and analysis and looking into thesis and sticking to a model, um, you know, with this investment wisdom and operating model can be challenging. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit more, right? So conventional institutional investment by primary function is to make investment on behalf of this client or members. So typical hedge fund, as you mentioned, or private uh, investment, mutual funds, endowments are example of this traditional sort of, of this transitional markets. And there is a market structure in that world. And, and to understand what the market structure in more simplistic terms is that you have players that make up the connected segment, which, which sort of accumulate capital on one side, which is essentially fundraising, and the investment resources, which is making that investment to be these areas. And these are today governed by a batch relay system of transfer of funds and value and record keeping. So there's a bunch of counterparties involved that essentially move value and, and the entire financial services industry thrives on ensuring that there's no concentration risk there. Each entity has different roles and that market structure has evolved over time to again, alleviate the risk that we are seeing with the likes of three arrow capital and Celsius of the world that suddenly now the, the fact that you have so many multiple parties, the control doesn't lie with one, right? And this has evolved over time, the regulatory elements and so on and so forth. So, uh, and this information asymmetry that, that you describe um, plays an important role in formulating this thesis, right? And seeking the information and 
computing and imputing information to support either conviction or diversification factors in in the you know in the information gaps. What that essentially means is that that the 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 entire industry aims to understand where things are in in, in the process, so they can you know they have a natural advantage of processing that information. But in crypto space, this is all lopsided. There's no market structure. There is no adequate tools to capture, aggregate, organize, compute the veracity and velocity of information coming in. And this is not just true for, of course, retail investors, it's true for, uh, but again, the original thesis is to truly democratize. So if you ask me, crypto is really meant for retail and it's institutional that actually has overlay on top of that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So while the markets, the market data providers that you find in the industry have, have the lens of the traditional markets and asset classes, the question that I always ask myself is how do we factor in the decoupling and correlation of say NFTs and Web3 and, and, and let's say define that, you know, the DeFi infrastructure that provides financialization. I think that understanding of the relationship between, you know, that yes, we need decentralized storage, which is the foundation of metaverse, uh, which is, is reliant upon decentralization of, of the tokens, which fuel the industry and has an economic incentive structure that's used by NFTs. I think that that information and that understanding of the linkages with different emerging uh, industry sectors is largely lacking. And we are simply focused on trading tokens. And I think that's where this industry needs to, we need to understand as to how our, and there are some good examples which we'll discuss, but I'd like to take a short pause only because I think we've discussed a lot in terms of laying the premise of what's to come in the next 15, 20 minutes and unpacking a lot of these complexities around the industry, the industry segments and crypto industries and how do we financialize this and how do we sort of build. And I, I have listed, I made a list of, of things that we really want to seek out of this market on the long run. But I'll take a pause. And just again, since we have so many guests, love to get some questions from the audience uh, before we move forward with unpacking this a little bit more. Now you can either type your questions or you can simply speak up since this is meant to be interactive. Yes. Hi, Nitin. Uh, my okay. name is Michael Novak. I'm uh, dialing in from beautiful downtown Arlington, Virginia. Awesome. Um, so I agree with most of what you say. Uh, my background is mostly in the technology with a uh, uh, some FSI experience, but my current premise is... In the short term, this is going to happen because it's new. And so institutional investors are just trying to figure out where does this fit, what works, what doesn't. Yes, there's going to be issues that happen. Maybe in three years, it'll be, oh, yeah, this is more stabilized. We know what to expect now. But right now we're in that frothy, let's try this. If it doesn't work, okay, but we learned. Would you agree? Yeah. No, no, I, Michael, I'll tell you this, I couldn't agree more. And I, as a technologist myself, I've spent a decade and founded the blockchain labs and IBM and, and, you know, prior to moving to State Street and digital asset labs. And I think there's a, the industry has, has come to an agreement that many of these things are experiments, both from technology perspective, looking into new incentive economic systems. But if I were to look at, and there's a little bit more discussion of this, where if you look at the, the Terra followed by Celsius, followed by 3AC, and I have labeled that as contagion of incompetence because I think they have this sort of a halo effect on some of the founders that they will always do right. And I think if you were to look into what does the technology do, what's the utility of the technology, what value it actually provides, 
a lot of that was largely lacking. And you, if you look at the circular element of, let's say, Voyager Digital and Babel Finance and CoinFlex, it just turned out that all the failures that we've seen in the last, I would say, two, you know, since the fall of Terra and then has a ripple effect on the entire industry. There are about a handful of like 14 to 16 different players. And it turned out they all were borrowing and, you know, lending to each other. Um, so it, it created a bubble of sorts. And that was nothing to do with technology. I just think it was just bad, ill-governed, ill-managed finances, which could happen in the real world too. And the question that I ask myself is, what can we learn from the failures and build upon that success where there are successful projects that we should talk about. There are successful projects that have done well for the industry that have done in terms of truly creating value. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, the entire goal of Bitcoin since the genesis was to provide an egalitarian economic system. And today, if you have layer one protocol, which we will discuss in a few minutes, that if you have a Bitcoin and Ether, the rules of engaging in decentralized finance is exactly the same, no matter where you are in the world, as long as you have access to the infrastructure, which again, solves a purpose, has a utility. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's uh, that's a brilliant you know, observation. And also and where also I am now currently, oh, I'm sorry, just real quick, I was gonna add on and where, because of where I am geographically, it's always the concern or topic of regulation official or should these companies get together ahead of time and try and figure it out in the private market rather than just wait for the public sector to come through with a regulation that might be overbearing. Sure. So, so this is typically a period of what um, you know, I've often coined as ignorant exuberance. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're just like, wow, this is a fantastic space. Let's just get in. We can do anything. Well, you know, that's exciting and wonderful. But if you're running in, you know, an institutional grade fund, you shouldn't be doing anything. You should be doing the right thing. And, and a lot of these guys, um, you know, if you look at Three Arrows, they're based out of Singapore or Hong Kong. Um, and so they're in different locations around the world. They're still sizable and, and it's still relevant that I believe that these guys should actually have some um, correct regulatory guidelines that they run to. I mean, certainly our fund does unquestionably, we have to. Um, and the reason I think the difference between the regulatory guidelines needed in the institutional world versus maybe yep. the retail world, and that's another debate, um, is that you know we are handling other people's money. So that's the difference. It's yeah. So Derek, I have a challenging question for you, right? Uh, if you look at yeah. many smart crypto institutional investors and you happen to be one of them, I've known you for quite some time, worked on some of the projects, uh, well as at IBM, that, that many smart crypto investors have taken a hybrid approach. And let me explain what that is. Like when, when the investment narrative remains as it's well understood, like you know all the things that you describe in terms of emotions, in terms of thesis, in terms of market neutrality and volatility and you know, extracting value from that volatility. Um, the attempt to invest in a deeper understanding of the industry. So again, you have various industry focused funds, right? You have thematic funds that you invest into because they tout that they understand the industry better. They, understand, they have a basic understanding of impact of global macro and correlation between different industry sectors. Focus not only on disruption, but transformation, right? So if you look at the crypto industry, um, it started out with disruptive, uh, you know, elements of disrupting the financial services. Then it had founded users in healthcare and retail. And I was running around and talking to many clients in terms of, look, if you simply remove the asymmetry of information dissemination, then you can suddenly remove things like reconciliation. This is again, the utility of the tech itself. And so by creating interesting products by some of these smart 
institutional investors and removing the obscurity of tokens and blockchain and all the mechanics, which is still very raw. I think there is still a product that there's a demand by not only institutional investors, but by family offices and, and in, including retail investors, high net worth individuals, which still want exposure to it. And I think that EDPs, the electronic traded products and crypto ETP and ETFs, uh, for example, uh, was a great example that you still have, but there's caveat with that, those products. And there's caveat with your industry in general is that when you do this, when you issue a structured product around crypto, which is again, meant to be free, meant to be sort of, you know, truly, uh, you know, flushing global networks, you lose the efficiency because of the fee structures and, and transaction cost sort of eclipses the intended sort of benefits of a system that we envisaged and, and designed and, you know, with the advent of Bitcoin and the free premium erodes the entire value proposition. And maybe it's, as Mike mentioned, it's a journey that we are at one position today. And as long as you you're building an awareness over time, you begin to see the tokenizing of fun. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, that as you're building these products and trying to be a bit more conservative and understand the industry and not just go make a gamble on Shiba Inu with your starting comment and really think through the industry. What are your thoughts that on that? That wasn't investment that? advice, by the way. <laughs> of course not. And no one should take it either because it <laughs> provides no utility, no value, no matter how much uh, any of the, uh, the, uh, the social media celebrities tout about it. Uh, we always have to look into what is the utility of anything that we look into, right? So I'd love to get your th thoughts on, again, erosion of value because suddenly now you build the structured products, they have the same fee structure, they adhere to the same market structure. So while you have some element of, of understanding of it, but all the layering of fees, doesn't that erode the value of, the, of some of these structured products? And maybe it's an interim step before we get into truly tokenized assets uh, as we've been talking yeah. about in the past. And that's what I think it is. And, and you know, I've often turned around and said harshly that over the next five years plus, um, we as a fund should be disintermediated. We should be because as the regulations appear, as, as the ability for us to tokenize strategies appear, um, then, then funds that are traditional structured funds, such as ourselves, may well be disintermediated. Now, that does not mean that we don't play a great role now. We sure do. And, and it, what we do is we play, uh, play an on-ramp on role for institutional investors to get exposure to the space, like many other funds we're talking about today apart from three hours, it's you know, a couple of other exceptions there. Um, and so there's a definite role, but this is just part of evolution. I mean, you know, mankind brings to each of these new areas um, part of what makes us tick. And we can't help but do that because the creature we are. And so the things that we bring to this area, of course, are very firstly tribalism and community. And we see tribalism in Bitcoin, maximalist, you know, it's the only thing that exists, you know, well, come on. Um, and then we see community and tribalism wrapped around Ethereum, you know, Ethereum's the only way to go. I can't believe Bitcoin people are interested in it. It's an old technology. It's tribalism. And so this plays a role in the communities that are getting built. And those communities that are going to aggregate, get together, I think we'll also see them create DAOs. And those DAOs will start creating sophisticated investment strategies. And those sophisticated investment strategies will play a role along with the large institutions that are coming, um, and they are coming, um, to enter this space and start providing it with more liquidity, um, more access to funds, and a, and a broader audience. 
Um, remember, our audience is still tiny. I mean, you know, we're sitting in a room here um, with a number of people that are enthusiastic about it like we are, um, but the user base is about 350 million people at the moment, um, estimated as a few, a few months ago. It's growing at an extraordinary rate. It, yeah. it was tripled last year in size, but it's still 350 million out of what, 9 billion people. So we've got a long way to go. But I think in that journey, we're going to see this evolution of institutional investment involvement, evolution of, of, of sophisticated products for retail investors. And, um, and hopefully, I'm not sure how many libertarians are out there listing, sorry, but hopefully some regulation that comes into this space, not to stifle it, but just simply to provide some, some guidelines that uh, people aren't going to get heavily burnt on on the way through. What do you think, Nitin? You should make the comment in a Bitcoin conference and you, sh you should see the reaction uh, from the, from the <laughs> audience, uh, Derek. <laughs> but, you know, we should probably get Mark, who, who is the CIO of Portal Asset yes. Management. Um, and, and in fact, we've had endless conversations. And I like to, uh, again, uh, for the audience, Mark, uh, he's on the call with us also from Brisbane, Australia. And we've been working on this, at least in my IBM days, looking into unpacking the entire industry. Uh, 15,000 plus different tradable tokens now there are close to 50,000 plus different tokens out there. How do you classify them? How do we look into, for example, the craze with NFTs and the metaverse and the content that's being generated? Eventually, we'll need the decentralized storage, decentralized computing. And so there should be a natural growth in this new age of, 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 uh, of innovation that leads to not just you know, innovation in chipsets that drive efficient computing, but I view them as the data centers of the future. So it's not just about tokens. I think there's a lot of innovation that's happening in this space. And we are try we're trying to figure out the correlation between, let's say, the massive generation of content should lead to automatic correlation or direct correlation between the file storage and the protocols that are involved in file storage. And if there are a element of, of uh, let's say, disrupted Netflix, uh, then that content should also lead to a massive growth of network bandwidth. And there are many protocols who are trying to look at unused capacity of bandwidth. So that, that whole unpacking of it and categorizing it was an amazing experience. And we figured then let's take it to the next level. So Mark, uh, tell, us, tell us a bit more about your thinking as a CIO. Adhering to investment thesis, especially in times like this, can be incredibly difficult because you're questioning everything that we have done, but it's, it's a discipline that we have to stick to. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Thanks, <clears throat> thanks, um, thanks, thanks for having me. Um, so, I think you need to separate the technology from what what I'm trying to do, which is how to monetize the technology. So, I kind of approach investments with quite a you know a cold sort of cynical eye in terms of the numbers and and data points, rather than you know the the qualitative story behind it. I think. You know, the, the, the saying goes, um, you know, you, you need to take risk to generate reward, but risk also varies inversely with, with knowledge. And I think that's a big concern um, that I've, I've come across in, in the funds that we invest in or the funds, not the funds we actually invest in, the funds that we've done due diligences on in terms of looking to invest. We've probably looked at north of 250 funds trading in the listed space, all, all focused on crypto. And digital assets. Um, many of them come with both traditional financial backgrounds and tech skills. Uh, many are just focused from a tech perspective on, on the longer term thematic, which is fine. Uh, I think that's that's part of the challenge is I don't think there are many people um, that are able to combine 
in you know that's why the teams need to be built where you have very strong tech ability and very strong risk ability mm -hmm. risk management ability you know portfolio management and following a mandate um, which is generally quite clearly defined up front and a lot of funds will try have a very broad mandate to give them as much leeway as possible but ultimately you know portfolio management is is about risk management it's about controlling your volatility it's about investing in what you actually understand or what you believe to be something that is going to generate free cash at some point down the line that's going to be worth a lot more otherwise it's you know, you're investing in, in ideas which could prove to be very profitable in the short term. But what you need to be concerned about is at some point when you want to exit, you need to find liquidity. And so it's, it's not just having a good idea, it's having the liquidity to execute on that idea. Sure. I think the rules and the regulations you're talking about, rules are then, I mean, I, I, I'm a libertarian, but I believe that rules protect you. You know, the rules are there to regulate an industry. So you get rid of the bad players, which is very important. Um, but also that it gives it gives investors recourse as to you know if, mm. if their money isn't being managed properly. I think we've we've unfortunately you know seen bad players across all asset classes. You know we, we saw it in '98 with long-term capital management. We saw it in 2008 with with Bernie Madoff. We've seen it unfortunately in the crypto space now with with um, you know funds that have that have unfortunately seen redemptions and seen liquidations. But what's important is at this stage of evolution, what we're seeing is very similar to what we saw after 98. I'd say we're almost in exactly the same place, both in terms of adoption of technology, as well as the regulation of the technology. We're almost exactly in 98 in terms of number of users, plus the fact that once long-term capital management collapsed after the Asian financial crisis, you saw regulation come into the space and everyone thought it was the end of hedge funds. But what it really did was it regulated the managers as well as the products. And that meant managers could get in trouble for not following their mandate. And that's very punitive because it ends your career in financial services. And also the idea is to kind of make money and, and stay out of jail, right? So after that, it attracted a lot of funds, a lot of funder funds and a lot of institutions into this place. And hedge funds as an asset class exploded um, or, or as an investment product rather, should I say, exploded. And that's where I think we are right now. The tricky part right now is that most hedge funds back then were based on underlying assets such as equities, fixed income, and so on, and the newly sort of emerging derivative and asset-backed securities. Whereas in this instance, the hedge funds that we're investing in are trading, you know, securities as we believe them to be, but digital assets that are not widely understood by government. And I think the concern is that we don't want to be seeing this industry position itself in an, any sort of antagonistic way towards um, regulators. And that's kind of where, where we're at at the moment. I think it's a pivotal moment for the industry. I think this year itself is a pivotal moment, not just in terms of global geopolitics, in terms of energy and, and, and how our energy policies globally, but also in terms of, you know, the emergence of CBDCs and how crypto and, and digital assets fit into that. And the final, the final thing I'd say is that, you know, I think people generally... When I say managing money, generally business is quite simple, any, any form of business. It's quite simple. There's a revenue and there's a cost and there's a profit. I think people complicate things sure. and people run complex strategies. So what I say is, you know, if you're looking at the space from an investor point of view, which is what we're doing, we're looking at both from a fund point of view, but also now with our own actively managed fund, we're looking at a broad range of tokens and, and we can select as many or as few as we want. 
But you know, the more simple and easy it is to understand the business model and the more applicable it is, especially when it comes to the picks and shovels kind of approach, it becomes a lot easier to see the value and where it's going to be created. And I think that's just a lesson that, you know, I, th I think developers to an extent, but industry participants need to learn is to make things more complicated and convoluted discourages investment rather than encourages it because the industry is well moneyed. I mean, there's probably 50 billion just in the US alone in VC investment in the last 18 months, sure. probably the equivalent sure. worldwide. And that's sticky five to seven year money. That money's not going anywhere. And there's big institutions coming into the space that want to invest and build not scalpers like what we saw with, with Terra Luna. That was a, those, th those were sharks rather than investors. And I do think we're going to get to that point, but there's, there's, there's a bit of a gap from you know, where we are at the moment to where we need to be so that we can actually attract proper institutional money, not just family office money, but proper pension, provident fund, you know, superannuations, as they call them here. That's going to be the real driver of this is, is longer term sticky money rather than short term speculative money. So, yeah, that's that. Got it. No, that's there, brilliant. Uh, great observation. Yeah. I know Mike has, has his hand up for a while and maybe there's a chance for a second break. Uh, Mike, uh, sorry, we went on a long rant. You had a question? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks a lot, Nitin, for coming on the of course on the on the podcast. Yes, <laughs> and uh, thanks to all the attendees for coming as well and and participating. And I encourage you to go on to LinkedIn afterwards and drop a comment on the podcast and thereby help promote it a little bit. You know, John Hargrave and I were down at Consensus, and I know you were down there. I'm sure plenty of the other people on the podcast were down there as well. And DAOs were a very big topic there. Yes. They had an entire DAO house. Uh, so to me, that signals that, you know, Consensus is one of the biggest, most attended blockchain-wide events uh, in, the, in the year. And they had an entire venue associated with DAOs yeah. and and it was pretty much standing room only the entire time wow. so I'd be here I noticed you mentioned it already um, I'd be curious to know uh, about your your feelings about DAOs in the context of institutions one of the things that we heard down there was that DAOs have a much broader application than people are giving it you know, credit for. Um, and the last thing I'll say is in the institutional evolution that you just mentioned, you know, the problem with institutions is the very nature of institutions in that they are really adverse to innovation. And uh, there's a lot of what is commonly known as innovation theater happening right now and i'm sure you're very well aware of that and there's a whole there's a whole uh, shelf of books at barnes and noble about <laughs> innovation that you know has come up in the last you know five to ten years so um curious about DAOs. thanks yeah. Derek, i'll let you go first because when we started this journey again back in the day you had the vision of eventually having whatever you have built over time with portal assignment as a DAO. Uh, so tell yeah. us a little bit more about that, and I'll, I'll opine on my expression. What I observed also, at uh, and again, I've done some extensive work in tokenomic systems for that. I'm happy to share that. But Derek, I'll let you go first. So, so Mike, philosophically, 
you're absolutely right. Institutions um, generally push back against the space. What we've discovered as we do business with, uh, we've just recently been to um, Geneva and Zurich and London, um, meeting family offices and large, very, very large um, institution platforms there. Um, and they are starting to warm to this space. But that's only, that's only certain people are starting to warm to the space. There's certain traders that are starting to warm, certain wealth managers starting to, because they realize that in two years time, if they're not invested or not have capability in this space, um, then, they'll, then they'll actually have reputational risk. And we often say two years ago, if they were, they would have reputational risk. So you can see we're in this transition, but there's always gonna be pushback, Mike. And the reason why is the institutions have so much to protect. They have infrastructures, jobs, they, they, they represent, um, you know, in many cases a value add and in other cases a rent um, that's taken. Um, and so what our base discovery is, is the deeper they are into traditional, traditional ways of generating income, the harder it will be to see that disintermediated. Now, on the flip side of that, um, the, the, this, I think, the world of Dow is probably, and the ability to fractionate assets through security tokens is probably the single greatest democratization in the history of mankind. This is an ability to be able to enable someone that's sitting in an Indian village, let's say, um, that has saved $100, um, that's got a smartphone and some savvy and some education, um, and they can invest in a small fraction of a property trust or a small fraction of a business um, or an asset class. And uh, in such a way that the current siloed um, stock exchanges of the world um, do not allow. And, uh, and that's part of the sort of the, the um, you know, banking the unbanked without a bank. Um, and so it's very exciting. And I think DAOs will play a role with that because DAOs will enable the creativity of a community to enable investors to come in and invest for very small amounts of money in highly liquid environments. Um, will they blow up and go wrong? I think so. I think there's going to be plenty. <laughs> so so to, to me, uh, Mike, to answer your question, for audience, decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs were sort of initially conceived about eight, nine years back. The concept, the fact that you can build corporations in a decentralized manner where you don't have a single owner and you have a decision-making capabilities of the participants who are stakeholders in the ecosystem. And actually I have worked a lot in this space in the past few years in understanding what that means for financial services. And I think I have a colleague, Jules, who's, uh, who is leading sort of the mindset ventures and looked into some of the Kaufman fellows who are entrepreneurs in crafting a DAO. And I think there's a spectrum, uh, Mike, that while they're decentralized autonomous, that you still need a legal structure because again, you have to adhere to regulation of the way we distribute funds, the way the money that's fundraised is being used for investment purposes and so on and so forth. So the, the premise of some of these DAOs, and they're DAOs in every different categories, of course, but to bring it back home with investment, you know, investment angle, that you have a lot of DAOs. And I think I was looking into Mantra DAO from Soma Finance the other day, where the idea is that we can perform all these activities of accumulating capital, which is fundraising, and sort of investment resources, investing into certain projects. And if you were to entirely do that process in, let's say, the cryptosphere, right? So you could have a layer one project, or you could have a layer two projects, or let's say you may have an application that's 
something like a like a lending platform that needs to raise money. Uh, you could potentially, in today's world, in the spectrum of moving from quasi decentralization to eventually decentralization, I think DAOs make up a good middle of the ground that you can still register an entity as a delivery entity. You could still have folks who are keeping an eye on this in terms of managing it to understand the better end and intervene when things go wrong at some level, but still reduce the cost, again, the transaction cost and, and plug in into the digital form. I think to me, that's a good happy medium to be in that suddenly now, and in many of the tokenomic systems that I've worked on, you know, uh, we looked into this and saying, you know, when you when you take your 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 fee and when you have, uh, you know, uh, when you get the payout uh, from a perspective of carry, how do you treat that that those funds? And there are specific regulations in terms of advisory fees and who who you pay for, what you pay for, what's the maintenance, what's the management, what's the running cost, which is the simplicity of what Mark was talking about. The tokenomic system should reflect that. Otherwise, that if you are entering into opacity of information, that oftentimes leads to where we are today in this contagion of incompetence with 3AC and, and in CoinFlex and some of the folks who are looking into, you know, like Voyager, like they, they, they didn't really fully understand this. Uh, they were empowered with capital, but that created more opacity. So I'll stop at that. And I know we're conscious of time. I do have a few things I'd like to mention before I give it back to uh, Derek. In terms of what we really want to seek with this, like what is what do I as an industry, as a technologist, and now, you know, as financial industry uh, participant, like to understand this in terms of what I expect from this ecosystem? Uh, but I'll pause here, Mike. Does that that make sense? Uh, any comments yeah. on that? Yeah. No, that was that was really good. Thank you so much for doing that and, and for yeah. answering that question. Uh, um, yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll and I have a few pointers that I like to uh, to to mention before I pass it back to Derek. Is what I, as I've been working in this industry for over a decade, trying to understand this, trying to learn, trying to build stuff. Uh, there are a few things that I I seek. I seek a shift from digitization to tokenization, which is one way to upgrade the financial system that we are living in today. Tokenization of fund allows for fractionalization which leads to larger markets and liquidity. So it's, it's yes. at the end of the day, we have to stick to the ethos of where blockchain led Bitcoin and other asset classes are coming to the system. That is one of the, one of the primary you know, um, objectives of the industries to be able to make things easier, make things transparent, make things understood. And an important fact to achieve those two objectives, such as digitization, tokenization, and allowing the various investment instruments to be fractionalized and creating larger markets is essentially tokenization, which is an important part of fiat and liquidity, which is stablecoin or central bank digital currencies, is essential. Otherwise, we'll still be impacted with, by the time delay in settlements, and that creates transactional value in inequity, where suddenly now you're waiting on certain things to happen, and that creates a, a lopsided transaction model and creates further arbitrage opportunities and opacity of information. So it's important that we don't just don't focus on tokenizing the world in terms of the various instruments and various asset classes, but also focus on a fungible instrument, um, where, you know, whether it's a, it's, a, it's a fiat currency or whether it's a, another layer one market. And lastly, is creation of a secondary market that, is, that seamlessly bridges for exchange of various asset classes, for example, through uh, without going through a settlement or a fungible instrument like USD. Uh, and, and that I think creates, again, ability for us to be able to uh, improve information asymmetry or sort of rather uh, remove the information asymmetry 
which rely on a domicity of a transaction and asset pair trading without the use of fungible instrument. I think that will significantly improve the market structure, improve transparency in general. And to achieve that, there's a whole lot of tech and understanding. And, and that too, I think Mark's point, will also lead to better regulation that will help us stay on course. Of course, there are challenges, um, regulatory challenges, lack of clarity, technology risk, reputation risk. And that's up to us, all of us on this call and, and, and my cohorts to address. I'll pause here and, and Derek, love to get your thoughts before we open up the last sort of Q&A. Sure, sure. Um, look, around, around the tokenization aspect, uh, you know, it, people have often said to me, you know, how many tokens will there be? There's 16,000 now. That's ridiculous. It's just way too many. That's just the beginning. There really should be ultimately a million tokens out there. And I'm talking security tokens now. You know, could you imagine for a moment that, you know, the exchanges of the world have got 600,000 listed companies on them? And, and I'm sorry, but if you look at the capability of being able to digitize and fractionate assets and put smart contracts associated with a shareholding, they're dumb. These, are, these, are, these shares give you the right to vote. They give you the ability to have dividends and they're highly managed by, by um, settlement houses. Um, and, and if you had a share in a company, like you had a share in Walmart and you went and purchased, every single time you purchased a sh you know, something at Walmart, you got an option of some sort to be able to buy more stock or to be able to get a return of some sort or a holiday given. This could all be built into smart contracts, could all be built into, into a token, which is a digital asset. Um, and that can be owned by anybody in any country at any time, anywhere in the world. This is a huge breakthrough. And, and I think you're going to see there that um, there's going to be an awful lot of digital assets appearing in the future. And the generations that come to use that are going to be used to seeing their whole selection of assets on their phone, whether it be their actual, the value of their home sitting there, their loans and their shareholdings and their non-fungible tokens um, and their ownership of DAOs, it should all appear in a wallet on their phone. And the interesting thing about every one of those things is on the grounds there, liquidity. You could argue the proposition, they're also cash, but you can trade with them. And, and it starts to become blurry. Um, and there, how do we get there? That's really difficult to follow because if anyone tells you it's going to be like this in three years time or five years time, I suggest you just change the channel. And the reason why is because it's not lineal, is it, Nitin? I mean, we've talked about this before, you know, that I've said often, you know, that the concept of when those USB plugs came out and they got to a gigabyte in size, I was so excited. I thought that's amazing. Soon they'll be so big, you know, you'll be able to put the entire world's library on one of these things. And I was right, right library of music. And I was right, but I was wrong. I was right in the fact that maybe you can, but I was wrong in the fact that it's irrelevant because streaming services came along. And so I think what we're going to see is our projection of where we think this is going to head, but it's not lineal and, and its growth along the way is going to change. And I'll add one more thing, and that is some really basic economics. And I used to be in public companies for most of my life. When you take a private company with a reduced liquidity, you're purchasing at a price earnings ratio of say five, maybe seven, maybe nine if it's strategic. And then you're putting it in a public environment and all of a sudden its price earnings ratio is 15, 17, 20. There's an immediate upswing. Why is that? Liquidity. And sure. this space is going to provide assets with liquidity 
and you'll see assets increase in price because liquidity is provision provided to them. Um, so anyway, that's that's my thought. I know we've got a couple of questions along the way, Nitin. Do you want to sort of address some of those? Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, by the way, I love the whole analogy of liquidity, which is so true. Yes, I love the Encarta uh, analogy, uh, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just remember what it was because I had completely forgotten what Encarta was. Um, but I believe, um, I believe Frank, Derek, are these, as a direct the question from Frank is, are these institutions investing in BTCs at size? Isn't that the easiest way for them to get started in crypto blockchain? Mm. On-ramps, Nitin. It's just an on-ramp. And so, so what I mean by that is that, um, so we do know that um, as of only about a week ago, 44.6% of Bitcoin is owned by whales with more than a thousand um, Bitcoin in place. So yeah. we, we see that whales are playing a major role in it. And we can also see that um, institutions, um, certainly if you li listen to Kathy Woods, her calculation on the potential value of Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is based around the concept of, of corporations having part of their cash um, sitting in Bitcoin rather than just in bonds and in gold. And, uh, and she estimates two to 3%, I think by memory. And that would increase its value to, I think it was yeah. something like 250,000 US dollars. Um, and then what, what would happen if sovereign nations started to do the same? So, so there's extraordinary opportunity there. Whether that happens or not, we don't know. Um, but the way I look at institutions investing in Bitcoin is that um, if they do, it's an on-ramp for them to look at other opportunities. I, I look at CBDC as exactly the same. I hope it will be. And that is that if CBDC or stablecoins become a major role, and they will, in um, how transactions of corporations are done, then those corporations will sit there and go, well, will I leave my money with a bank and get half a percent return? Or will I leave it in a USDC and get 3% return or 2% return? And they'll start utilizing then decentralized finance and they'll start utilizing the other things within the space. So I see Bitcoin, I see CBDCs and I see stable coins as massive on-ramps into this industry for corporations. Thanks. Oh, that's brilliant. And I think Roy, Roy talks, talks about the fact that why that's why PayPal no longer tries to innovate. Uh, that's true. Uh, I think that's any for any large corporation that includes Microsoft, Google acquisition becomes the fastest way to get them to market only because they get so bloated and the innovations life cycle itself becomes quite big, which was not the case when these companies were nimble. Though I think in the crypto space, this downturn has seen a lot of consolidation as we have seen again, FTX going for BlockFi and you begin to see uh, Nexo trying to acquire Vault and you find a lot more consolidation because suddenly things, the, the, the extremely high valuation that was there before the downturn suddenly become very attractive for the companies who actually have the liquidity and have maintained sort of their their vision and not defrayed. I think that's, I'm keeping an eye on who's trying to acquire who and why, uh, only because again, there's no structure yet. So whether FTX acquires an entity for getting a specific licensing or specific technology is indicative of their performance or their ambitions in future, uh, which I have a thesis that for any entity to be in crypto space, you have to have basic table stakes uh, technologies like asset tokenization, rails for transporting tokens and, and, and digital asset custody become the foundational element that any entity who's in this business need to have. So I'll pause here. Uh, uh, question for Michael. Go ahead, Derek. So Nitin, can we talk about decoupling? Because Please, it's, it's a really yours. important thing. It's all uh, No, it's both. <laughs> and the reason why 
is that is that you know we 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 as a fund keep talking about the fact that the impact of this marketplace, you know, some 70% odd impact and downside, volatility downside of this marketplace, then you need to start having a look at Netflix. You need to start having a look at Meta. You need to start having a look at what um, NASDAQ is currently doing. And NASDAQ is down, I don't know, I think it's 30, 35%, maybe more. And certainly Netflix is down 70% and Meta is down 40 to 50%. These are large um, drops. And a lot of people are saying, hey, we, you know, this space is correlated with, um, with uh, NASDAQ. Why? Why is it correlated with NASDAQ? NASDAQ is developing centralized um, traditional technologies. Um, this space is developing decentralized technologies. NASDAQ is growing at a predictable mature rate. This space is growing at an exponential rate. Why are we coupled with the value of NASDAQ? And I think this is wrapped around the fact that this, there's a difference between price and value. And we are, this space has been priced down, but the value is still there. And, and so, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on why and when can we decouple from NASDAQ? And I guess it's the institutions that will allow us to do that ultimately, or the, <laughs> the, the opinion yeah, I, will allow us, but, yeah. but we shouldn't be coupled. What do you think, Nipple? Yeah, and I think that's tied to Michael's question on current interest rates, inflation effects on token value. So a few things in this side, and that should answer both questions. The reason why I, I think, and I've been writing and talking about this for quite some time, I think if you look at the, I wrote an article on why this blockchain, which is participative economics, lacks participation, that we are just buying and selling tokens without actually understanding what they do. And in many cases, you do need to, the people who are mining are participating in the ecosystem. The people who are dedicating the computers to provide storage are participating and they have an earn component to it. Today, what's happening is that stable coins, which is ability for us to move our US dollar, which is value from one system, which is the system we live in, to another system. Uh, and with the changes in global macro, which is interest rates, dry up liquidity in the real world, sucks out the same liquidity that went from our real world into the crypto world. And that, again, is driving the valuation of tokens. That's driving the lack of liquidity. That's driving all the challenges. And the reason why I think decoupling is important is the ability for the industry to create its own value system, and its own merits, and not rely on liquidity coming from USD and, and fiat. And until that dependency is there from, again, stablecoin is the highest transactional token in, this, in the entire system. That's because all this liquidity is coming from on-ramp, off-ramp. At some point, we need to address that. I'll leave it at that for now. There's a lot to unpack there. We have, you know, reach out with me and I've written enough, you know, on this topic. And we have had podcasts on this topic in the past as well. So That's back right. to you, John. It was, I can talk, we can talk for hours on this, as you know, but I know we are running on, on time. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to Derek and to Nitin and to Mark for your expertise tonight. I've learned so much. Uh, I take notes here and uh, do not buy Shiba Inu. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.